0: You're listening to Pastor Ryan Couch at Calvary Chapel of Crook County as he teaches through the book of Luke. If you have your Bibles ready, let's join Pastor Ryan now. The gospel of Luke, been studying Luke and learning from Luke, seeing Jesus in Luke since Christmas time, and, and it has absolutely just rocked my world every single week. It, it's, it's an amazing um, gospel and I pray that that you 've been changed as well. I pray that you 've been challenged and, and that God is working in you and i 'm afraid that this morning isn 't going to be any different in tone and tenor uh, from where we 've been uh, in being somewhat direct in being somewhat uh, in your face and and being um, you know like let 's put let 's quit playing games and and so um i 'm just going to tell you that ahead of time kind of like a disclaimer then you won't get mad at me but uh no this is this is intense and and here's the cool thing is first service we had a time constraint we don't have that now so i had to cut all kinds of stuff out first service you guys were waiting out there and now i don't have to do that so no we'll, we'll try to be concise try to be But there's a lot here, a lot I want to unpack, and and so let's uh, get to work uh, looking at Luke 12, 1-34 this morning. And really the question that kind of arises out of this is, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? That's the, the question I want to pose to you this morning. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? Because I think as Luke writes this, remember... He's writing this to to show us who Jesus is and to show us what it means to be a follower of him. Because a disciple at this time, one that would become a a disciple of a particular rabbi, that's where the whole concept came from. A, A rabbi in training. He would work very closely with a rabbi. So closely that whatever he was doing, he would be right there. In fact, history tells us The rabbi in training, the disciple, would even follow his rabbi into the bathroom because he wanted to know how does he go to the bathroom? What does he do? What's involved in this whole process? He wanted to know everything. How does he talk? What are his facial expressions? How does he treat people? How does he answer questions? Down to the nitty-gritty. So much so that when a disciple was well-trained, you would look at that disciple and you would say, you're being trained by Rabbi so-and-so. And when people look at our lives, you guys, as disciples, if you're a Christian here this morning, then you're a follower of Jesus Christ. If you're not a Christian here this morning, then I would ask that you would consider His offer of love and of grace. But if you are a Christian here, you're a disciple. And are you following so closely to Jesus? Are you mimicking Him? Are you abiding in Him? As First John says, he who says he abides in Christ must also walk just as Jesus walked. See, it takes this whole bracelet thing that says what would Jesus do to a whole new level where you actually do it. And don't just wear a t-shirt or a bracelet or some other thing. Well, what does it mean to be a disciple, a follower? It means that our life looks like Jesus's. And when people see you and encounter you, do they say, That's a follower of Jesus. That person knows Jesus. Maybe they can't even articulate it, but they know that there's something dynamic, there's something special, there's something very attractive about you, just like there was about Jesus. And we're going to see that in our text, chapter 12, verse 1. In the meantime, when an innumerable multitude, or some translations say thousands of people, wherever Jesus went, people were there he was attractive. People were attracted to him. And so in our lives as disciples, our life should be attractive to people. And in verse one, we see that Jesus is addressing his disciples, this multitude of people so tightly grouped together so that they can get as close to Jesus as they can. Because remember, there's no PA system. So they're just crowding in wanting to get as close to Jesus to hear what he has to say. They're leaning on every word, and they're there. And it says, Jesus began to say to his disciples. And so in our text this morning, we're going to learn some things about what Jesus wants to say to his disciples. He's speaking in this multitude to his disciples. Certainly there were people there that weren't followers of Jesus. They were just there for a miracle. They were there to be fed. They were there because they heard this guy's real controversial and they want to know what he's about. But Jesus is speaking to his disciples. And therefore, what follows in our text this morning is going to help us to understand Jesus's thoughts about discipleship and about what it means to be his disciple. And what we're going to see is really the negative side of defining discipleship. And I hope you know that, that When you define discipleship, certainly there are things that are positive, things that you should do as a disciple. But then there are things that are negative, in other words, things that you ought not do, things that shouldn't define you. And we're going to see three of those in our text. Three things that disciples don't do. Three things. First of all, disciples aren't fake. They're not hypocrites. Secondly, disciples aren't greedy. They're not selfish. And thirdly, disciples aren't worriers. They're not riddled with anxiety and fear. They trust God. So three things that disciples aren't. They're not fake, they're not greedy, and they're not worriers. Well, let's unpack these things. In verses 1 to 12, disciples aren't fake. Jesus, speaking to his disciples, says, Beware of the leaven or the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Beware. Jesus, in speaking negatively and telling us what we shouldn't be, gives us warnings. I'm warning you. This is a beacon. This is a, a lighthouse. Beware of this. Beware of phoniness, hypocrisy, being fake. What is hypocrisy? The, the word literally means to wear a mask. It, it came from the Greek theater, where the actors would always wear a mask. And you never saw their face. They were putting on a show. They were being somebody that they aren't. That's what hypocrisy is. It's putting on a facade, a show. It's being phony. And let's be real. The church is one of the phoniest places on planet earth. It's one of the places where we feel like we've got to put on a facade. We've got to put on a mask. And Jesus says, disciples aren't fake. They're not phony. They don't wear masks. And some of you have been wearing a mask for so long because you're so ashamed of who you really are and you don't want anybody to know it so you've put up this facade and you've fooled people for a long time because as other people were pretty stupid some of you have gotten really good at putting on a facade at wearing a mask others of you aren't so good at it and it reeks and you can look at you and you can say phony there's fake it's hypocrisy why the facade? And you know where it happens the most in the church? is from the pulpit. It's why I typically don't like pastors a whole lot. It's like I go to pastor's conference, and I just, like, I just want to hang out with some normal people, some real people that don't have a facade, that aren't wearing a mask, that aren't trying to impress me. Who are we trying to impress? I have a family member who, if you don't know her very well, she is the most complimentary, the most gregarious, kind friendly person you've ever met. Everybody loves her. But when you know her, you know it's all fake. It's a facade. Because when she has an opportunity, she'll stab you in the back. When she has an opportunity, she'll tear you down. Oh, but isn't, isn't she so friendly? Isn't she so nice? No, it's fake. And why the facade? Why the fakeness? Because when your heart is ugly, why would you want to show it to anybody? You don't want to show the real you, because the real you kind of sucks. You don't want to show that to anybody. And so you cover it up. You mask it. You're a hypocrite. And some of you need to repent this morning because you've been fooling people for a long time. You've been wearing a mask. You've got a facade. You've got a persona. And even while you're saying niceties in your mind, you're thinking, I can't stand people. It's hypocrisy. Jesus said it shouldn't be a part of the life of a disciple. You guys, if anything I hope that what you've seen in me is authenticity, that I'm real. And I say a lot of things I wish I didn't say. I mean, there's not a week that goes by that I'm not driving home. I got a little bit of a drive to get home. There's not a week that goes by that I don't think, why did I say that? What am I doing? But I hope you know that I'm real, that I'm authentic, that you're going to get what you're going to get. And I hope that we've created that in the DNA of this church. Authenticity, realness, being open and transparent, admitting our faults. You Guys, when the church does that, the Holy Spirit can work. But when the church, and what I mean by that is the people, not this stupid building, I mean you. When the church does that, the Holy Spirit can work. It's been said that if all were known, all would be forgiven. Can you imagine if we came to church with like a little bubble over our head that said our sins? I think it would change everything. Yelled and screamed at my wife, punched a hole in the wall last night. I didn't do that, I'm just saying you know, screamed and cussed at my children on the way to church. You know, I mean, I didn't do that either. But if if all were known, all would be forgiven. But what we do is we mask it, we hide it. We don't confess our sins to one another. We're not real. We're wearing a mask, and it's got to stop. It's hypocrisy. It's Phariseeism. See, the Pharisees were great at wearing masks. They had this phenomenal reputation of righteousness and holiness. And everybody thought these guys are perfect. And they never admitted to anybody that they struggled and that they sinned. And they walked around and everybody pretty much worshiped them. And see, you can get away with that, you guys. You can get away with it with people. But at some point, you will stand before God and everything, everything will be naked and bare to him. And that's why Jesus goes on to say, For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be known. In Hebrews chapter 4, the writer talking about the word of God says that it basically strips us naked before him. Have you ever felt like when you read the Bible that God is just stripping you to your very core? In that same passage, it talks about that the Bible separates the bone and the marrow. Now, If you've ever had that happen, or if you've ever been around someone that has, I've heard it's the most excruciating, painful thing that you can ever go through to have marrow extracted from your bone. And it is painful. You guys, being real is painful. But here's your choices. You can be fake and phony before people and then stand before God and have him say, you hypocrite. Or you can do it now and take off the mask and be real before him. Because you will have to do that eventually. He sees it all. And you've been fooling people, but you're not fooling God. Therefore, whatever you have spoken in the dark will be heard in the light. Many of you say things that you would be absolutely ashamed of if they were put up on the projector in the screen here at church. You'd be absolutely ashamed. And I'm not talking about cussing. You know what? Say as many cuss words as you want to say. But when there's anger in your heart, when there's bitterness, when you're lashing out at people, when your tongue is destroying other people's lives. That's what I'm talking about. A lot of Christians are really good at taking the S word and damn and hell and other four-letter words out of their vocabulary. They're really good at that. But then they replace it with slander and gossip. I'd rather you said the F word than do that. God's not happy that you got rid of a few words and then replaced it with absolute and utter filth. But you cover it up by being nice to people and to their face. Now, I'm not saying be a jerk to people's face. We ought to be loving, right? I mean, that's ideal. But if you've got something to say, then just say it to them. There's this cool little invention. It's called the telephone. It's amazing. You dial the numbers and you can get a hold of somebody. You know, I've had people say, oh, well, I was going to talk to you, but I, you know, I couldn't get a hold of you. If you can't get a hold of me, then you're not trying very hard. And same with others. Talk to them. Tell them what you need to say. Be brave enough and courageous enough to say it to their face. Because whatever is said in the dark, it's going to come out. It will come out. People will talk about it. It's going to come back to you, and you're going to have to deal with it. And so we have to start owning our words, and we all have to work on this. We're all guilty. Whatever you have spoken in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have spoken in the ear, in inner rooms, this inner compartment in the home where they would keep their treasure and they would keep their valuables, what's been spoken in there will be proclaimed from the housetops. Essentially what this is saying is, those conversations that you have in the privacy of your own home, Yeah, well, eventually, they're going to be proclaimed on the TV, on the radio, in the internet. That's what it meant to be proclaimed from the housetops. They didn't have media. If you wanted to get something across, you went up on your roof and you shouted it. So essentially, it's saying, those secret things, yeah, they're going to be made known. And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after he is killed, has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins and not one of them is forgotten before God? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. See, hypocrisy, you guys, phoniness, putting on a facade. Do you know where it comes from? It comes from the fear of man which the proverb says is a snare. It's because you fear people. You fear what people will think of you so you don't want to show them your heart. You fear what people will say about you. You fear your reputation. You fear that if you truly do go to that person and you talk to them and tell them what needs to be said instead of talking to others, that they will not like what you're saying, that you'll have a conflict and that you'll actually have to deal with something rather than just talking about it. And it'll get to the, the root of the problem, to your heart as well. And there's a fear there, a fear of man. And if you're a hypocrite, if you're phony, if you're a fake person, it's because you fear people and you don't fear God. See, if you feared God, you'd say, God, one day I'm going to stand before you and I'm going to give an account of this. So I don't want to be fake because I can't fool you. I can fool others, but I can't fool you. So God, I don't want to be fake anymore. I want to be real and I'll pay the price. If I lose my reputation, oh well. If I lose my job, oh well. If I lose my family, so be it. But I'm gonna be real. My calling in life is not to win friends and influence people. My calling in life is to glorify God. And if that means that I've got to expose my heart for people to trample on, then so be it. And it hurts, it hurts a lot. People take your heart and they use it against you. And they take your authenticity and they use it against you. It happens. Believe me, it happens. But I'll settle for the alternative. I'll settle for being real and having people say whatever they want to say. Fear him who not only has the power to kill, but has the power to cast into hell. See, you're fearing people that can kill your reputation, that can kill your employment status. You're fearing, fearing people that maybe even could potentially harm you physically. Most of us aren't in any threat of being killed But whatever it is, we're fearing man, and we're fearing what he can do to us. And Jesus says, look, fear God, who can not only do that, but could also send you to hell. And look, I don't like to talk about hell any more than anybody else does, but the Bible talks about it, and it's a real place, and it's literal, and it's physical, and it's not cool. And that's why we're here, is because we don't want to go to hell. And so we gave our life to Christ, because we want to have relationship with God. We don't want to be separated from him. And so we needn't shrink back from talking about it, but we need to know the reality of it, that God is a holy God, and that people are going to hell. And apart from Christ, that's where we're headed. And we need to have a good reminder about hell now and again. Be reminded of the judgment of God and the holiness of God. Fear Him. And this word has kind of been weakened, and you know, well, it means just to, to be reverent, and it means just to kind of stand in awe. It means fear. That's what it means. Now, it's tempered with the next verse. Are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins? Worthless sparrows. You know those birds that are in barns and farmers shoot them with shotguns like ten at a time? Yeah, those sparrows, they're sold for two copper coins. Like the, the lowest denomination in the Jewish monetary system, these copper coins pretty much worthless. Are not one of them forgotten before God? Not one of them is forgotten. God knows every one of them. He created them. They're important to him. These sparrows that are sold for a penny. How much more you, whom he created, whom he fashioned, who he said, you are an image bearer of me. I've made you in my image. You have the opportunity to have relationship with me. If you're a Christian, the Bible says you're the temple of the Holy Spirit. God lives in you. He rules and reigns in your heart. He dwells in you. You have the opportunity to fellowship with Him. The very hairs of your head are numbered. He knows you intimately. He knows your personality. He gave it to you. He knows your height. Sometimes I wonder, you know, Lord, why, why couldn't you have made me just a little bit taller? Especially like when I'm around tall women, then it really hurts my pride. You know, when you're looking up to a woman, you know, it's just like, oh man, Lord, why couldn't I have been like six foot? Just six foot, Lord, please. I remember I was a sophomore. I mean, I was really growing because a freshman, I was 5'2". Sophomore year, I grew like four, six inches. I thought, oh, this is awesome, you know. Time I'm a senior, I'm going to be six foot. Stopped, dead, cold. Sophomore year, never grew another inch. 5'8", boom. He knows everything about you. He knows your likes, your dislikes, your eye color, your gifts, your talents. He knows you. He loves you. Do not fear, therefore. You're more valuable than sparrows. So he tempers what he said about fearing God with, look, here's the gospel that God created you in his image. He loves you. You're valuable to him so much so that he sent his son to take the wrath that you and I deserve so that we could have that relationship with him. So yes, fear God, but have that fear motivate you to run to Jesus. That's what it's about. Also, I say to you, whoever confesses me before men, him, the son of man will also confess before the angels of God. And so here it is. Here's where that fear should lead you not to consternation and, oh God, you're going to strike me. Don't hit me with lightning, Lord, please. And running around like God somehow is just waiting to push the button to nuke you. And that's how many people live. Yes, fear. But have that fear drive you to Jesus. Confess him. If you confess him, he'll confess you before the angels in heaven. But if you deny him, he will deny you before the angels of God. Now this confession, you guys, it's not just about Saying a sinner's prayer, which, by the way, is not in the Bible. It's not about that. It's not about going forward at a crusade. And I mean, hey, it's a good way to give people an opportunity. But I've had people ask me, "How come we don't do altar calls very often?" Well, number one, they're not biblical. Number two, they didn't even become a part of church history until about a hundred years ago when Charles Finney began doing them. And so, they're not biblical. They're not even really historical in the church's history. Now, are they wrong? Are they sinful? Are they heresy? No, we do them at times. But the the truth of the gospel is that it's a verdict that's been handed down. Kind of like a judge. When a judge hands down a verdict, right? You've probably been to traffic court at least. Some of you have been to all other kinds of courts. Some of you have been in jail, whatever the case might be. When When the verdict is handed out, guilty. Pay the ticket, go into jail, whatever it is. You don't get to argue at that point. You don't get to say, well, I really don't like that decision, Your Honor. I really would like you... No, it's a verdict that's been handed down. Now, you're going to decide, basically, are you going to go along with it? Are you going to yield to it, or what? And that's the gospel. The verdict has been handed out. Now, what are you going to do with it? And so, when we present the gospel, I really want you not to think that it's about a prayer, but to see that it's about confessing Him with your mouth... And that confession leads to conversion, it leads to transformation, it changes your life. And see, we've been giving people the wrong impression that just saying a prayer, coming forward, you're good. You're good to go. The Bible doesn't give us that. The Bible says, the just shall live by faith. It's, it's ongoing. It has nothing to do with 20 years ago. It's where you're at with Jesus right now, confessing him. So yes, you ought to fear God. That fear ought to drive you to Jesus Because if you confess him, it'll change your life. You'll become a disciple. You won't be fake. You won't be phony. You'll be real. You'll be authentic. But if you deny him, he's going to deny you. So what have you done with Jesus? Who is Jesus to you this morning? Are you a disciple? Has he changed your life? When people look at you, do they see? Do they experience? Do they encounter Jesus? Or do they get some persona? Some phoniness? Some fake person that they really can't put their finger on. There's just something amiss. Guys, there was nothing fake about Jesus. You look at his life, there's nothing phony or fake about him at all. Confess him. If you have been denying him this morning, please do not deny him anymore. And to anyone who speaks a word against the son of man, it will be forgiven him. But to him who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. Now, when they bring you to the synagogues and magistrates, And authorities, do not worry about how or what you should answer or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, it's a a controversial subject. It's one that many different scholars and commentators have different opinions about. But most reputable scholars believe that it's very simple. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is to simply reject Christ. If you look at all the contexts of where this particular doctrine is brought up, it's always about denying Jesus and hardening your heart against him. And some of you have been doing that year after year after year. You've heard the gospel and you haven't done anything with it. You hear it again and you haven't done anything with it. And that's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And it will not be forgiven, it says. That's the only sin that's not forgiven, the unpardonable sin. And we have this idea of what the unpardonable sins are in the church. We've kind of elevated certain things as to what is unpardonable. It's like you know homosexuality. If a Christian participates in homosexuality, I mean that's really, really out there. But I mean, if a guy runs off with his secretary, you know at least it's heterosexual I mean it's kind of normal we kind of We kind of elevate homosexuality or. Or drunkenness. You know, if you see a person from church like stumbling down the street drunk, it it just strikes you as odd. And if you see him at church the next day, it's like, wow, that's weird. But if that same person is gossiping, if you're at the store and they come up to you and they're gossiping, you don't think anything about it. I mean, yeah, I got some juicy tidbits. And you can see that person the next day at church worshiping God and you don't think anything about it. So we've elevated certain sins above others. Divorce. For many years, divorce was like the unpardonable sin in the church. It is a sin, and God hates it. But God hates gluttony, too. God hates idolatry. God hates lust. So we can't elevate certain things. The only thing that separates you from God is rejecting Jesus. That's the sin that can't be forgiven. And so disciples aren't fake. They don't wear a mask. They're real. And I hope this morning that you'll take off your mask, that you'll become real before God. And allow him to expose your heart and to show you those areas of your life that he wants to work in. And he wants to revolutionize. A second thing that we see that disciples aren't is disciples aren't greedy. Verses 13 to 21. Then one from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. I I love these random things that, that happen in the Bible. I mean, here Jesus is just hard-hitting, right? He's talking about hypocrisy. He's talking about the leaven of the Pharisees. He's talking about how it spreads and it infiltrates the, the life of the follower of Christ. And then here's this guy. It's like he's not even listening. He's just waiting for a pause. And then, oh, oh Jesus, by the way, hey, I've got some uh, some issues here. My brother, we're having a dispute. Clearly I'm right. He's wrong. Will you tell him to give me the money? This is essentially what he does. It's like what many of us do when we go to people for advice. We really don't want their advice. We want them to substantiate what we already think. People come to me all the time, sort of with an agenda. You know, I want you to tell my husband that he is the off-scouring of the earth. Will will you do that for me? "Uh, No, I'm not. Let's talk about you. Oh, I didn't come here to talk about me. Clearly, he's a problem. Well, he's not here, and so it's really hard to talk about him, but let's go ahead and talk about you. Let's see what, how you've contributed to the problem. Because even if he no longer exists in your life, you still need to serve Jesus. So let's get to the bottom line. Well, I, I didn't really want to do that. You know, I, I, He's really the problem. If you knew him, and they come with an agenda, we can't come to God with agendas. W- what we need to do is say, Lord, what do you want? What this man should have said is, hey, Jesus, I'm having a dispute with my brother. I need wisdom. Will you help me? What he does is he says, I already have it figured out. I know what the right thing to do is. Tell him to give me the money. And see, what happens when we go to God with an agenda is that God will speak to us, and if we're listening, we'll hear. He will get to the nitty-gritty. He'll cut through all that phoniness and all the agenda that you have, and he'll get right to the heart, which is what he does with these guys. He says, man, which I love that he calls him man. It's like essentially dude. Dude, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? What makes you think... That my job is to deal with your financial problems. But here's what I want to deal with I want to deal with your heart. And he said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, greediness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. I remember the first time I read that verse, it absolutely changed the way I viewed money. Because we've been fashioned and we've been told our whole lives that he who dies with the most toys wins. And even if you don't have a lot, you're told, just go get it and you'll be happy. And that's how we raise our kids. We raise our kids in this materialism that says, if you just have the latest, then you'll be happy. And that's why you see parents knocking each other over to get the, the newest Elmo doll on Black Friday. It's why you see people waiting in line for six hours to get the PS3 to find out they're sold out. And the guy ahead, just ahead of you, the guy you've been behind for like six hours, he got the last one. And people like attack each other. Some dude at Walmart got trampled this year. Another lady got stabbed. (laughs) All for a toy. I guarantee you, the, the people that murder over Elmo are sitting in jail right now going, what in the world did I do? They're normal people. They're just like you. they got caught up in the greed and the covetousness, and their rage took over because covetousness leads to a whole bunch of other kinds of sins. And I'm going to get this for my kid. It's going to make him happy because look how happy I am. Certainly this stuff's going to make him happy, right? As I'm stabbing a person at Walmart. It's crazy. Take heed and beware of covetousness. Because your life doesn't consist in the things you possess. Do you know that? I don't think you do. I don't think I do. Because if I did, it would change the way I look at my money and my possessions. It would change the rage I felt when I opened the back door of my car and I saw that Caitlin had left an ink pen and got ink all over my seat. Just, I mean, ticks me off. I mean, I am anal about how my truck is kept... Right? How could you do such a thing? It doesn't really matter. It's just a truck. It's just stupid. If we really weren't possessed by our possessions and we were possessing them, which is the key, you either possess your possessions or they possess you. And if you really were possessing them, then you wouldn't be so caught up in I've got to get a house. Some of you that don't own a house, I mean, I got to get one. If I get one, I'll be happy. No, you won't. You'll have a mortgage payment, you'll have property taxes. You'll have maintenance. Now, it's great to own a house. It's a wise investment. Do it if you can. But don't think it's going to make you happy. Some of you single people, if I can just find a man, I know it'll make me happy. I know it will. Really? Is that why five, six out of ten marriages end in divorce because they make you so happy? They don't make you happy. In fact, what they do is they exacerbate your heart. They only show what you really are. And so if you want to be put in a magnifying glass, if you, if you want to be under the scrutiny of God, then get married. If you want to see what a pile of poo you are, <laughs> just get married. I mean, your heart will be revealed. So you guys, don't think a man or a woman is going to make you happy. They're not going to. Don't think that car is going to make you happy first couple months, it smells really good, and they they always give you 30 days without a payment, and then you get the payment. It's not so bad. But then it starts to get kind of old, about year three. It's not nearly as nice anymore, but there's something weird about it. They keep sending you a payment. Especially when you, like, amortized it out over, like, 30 years. They do that for cars now. It's like, you know, 12 cents a month till you die. (laughs) And you get these, you know, just payments, and, it's, and then you lose your job and you can't sell it because the economy's horrible. And so all of a sudden that, that idol on four wheels, it doesn't seem so cool anymore. It's like you want to light it on fire and collect the insurance if you weren't a Christian. Don't get any ideas. And so covetousness, beware of it because your life does not consist in the things that you have. Man, drive that into your children. Drive that into your heart. Because it starts with our kids. It really does. I mean, some of you young people, you know when you were like a little kid, it started with candy. If I can just get that piece of candy. My son Carson comes into my office. What what does he say? Does he say, hey, Dad, can I have a hug? No. Does he say, hey, Dad, I know a lot of people come in here and they want advice. Could I get some advice? No. Dad, could I uh, get one of these books from you? No, he has no interest in any of that. What he wants is candy because he knows that Dad is a candy fiend and i've always got candy so sometimes i'll lie to him and i'll say no i don't cuz i don't want him to have any or i'll say no you can't have any and then he'll start opening my drawers going through the drawers like you there's some right there dad <laughs> and i'll be like no you can't have any please just one okay you can have one don't come back okay 5 minutes later he'll open up the door real slow could i have another piece no you can't why you know it One is never enough, and it doesn't end there as a child. I mean, that's as cheap as it gets, you know, but then it just gets progressively more expensive and more damaging. Beware of being greedy. Beware of being possessed by your possessions. And now Jesus is going to illustrate his point. It's an illustration that I think ought to change the way that we handle our money, the way that we give The way that we look at the things that God has given us. Verse 16, it says, Jesus spoke a parable to them saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself saying, What shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? I mean, this was a banner year. This was 2005 in the Central Oregon housing market. I mean, this was a boom. What am I going to do? What am I going to do with all these crops? What am I going to do with all this money? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater, bigger barns. And there I will store all my crops and my goods. I mean, this is a genius. Tear down the small barns, big build one, big ones, so I can store all my stuff, all my crops, because we had a phenomenal year. And I will say to my soul, soul, this guy likes to talk to himself apparently, soul, You have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. Had an awesome year. More crops than he knew what to do with. More money than he'd ever had. And what does he say? I'm going to build bigger barns so that I can take the next several years off. And I can kick back and I can eat to my delight. I can drink. I can party. This is awesome. And what does God say? Fool, fool. This night, your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? This night, you're going to lose everything. You're going to die. And you can't take it with you. And so all this work, and all this effort, and all this focus and priority on your stuff, now somebody else gets to spend it. And you die empty-handed. Is that the legacy you want to leave behind? Is that what you want, is to be called a fool? Because your life was so focused on your things that you neglected people that you neglected your mission, that you neglected the glory of God, that you were seeking your kingdom and not his. Disciples aren't greedy, you guys. Disciples aren't possessed by their possessions. They possess their possessions. And it's foolish to spend your whole life seeking after something that you're inevitably going to give to somebody else. Seek first his kingdom is what Jesus is going to tell us. So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. What a sad indictment. To lay up treasure for yourself, to have everything you ever wanted, and yet to be spiritually broke, to have all of the riches of this world that are going to rot, and to have nothing that's of any eternal value. That doesn't make a lot of sense. Makes no sense at all from an investment standpoint. Where's your heart at with your money? We started off by asking, What is a disciple of Jesus Christ? asking you, Are you a disciple? Are you a follower of him? There's a couple things that that we have that are our greatest possessions. Our money and our time in terms of, of things that are resources to us. Our greatest possessions are people. They're the only eternal thing. But in terms of resources, our money and our time. And you look at your money. You look at however much you have. Look at your checkbook. And you see, is it all for me? Is it all about me? Or is there money for the kingdom? Am I giving sacrificially to Jesus and to the furtherance of his mission? And if you're not, you guys, you're greedy and you need to repent of that. Just like you need to repent of hypocrisy. You have gotten off the road of discipleship and you've gotten on the road of worldliness. Yeah, but Pastor Ryan, you don't know. I don't have any money. If I had a lot of money, I would give it. Now, I want to tell you something. That is a bunch of bull. That you need to extract that lie from your mind. You can continue to deceive yourself with that, but the only person you're fooling is yourself. You're not fooling God. Because here's the thing. If you've got 10 bucks, and let's just go with the old 10% thing. If you've got 10 bucks, I mean, it's it's not that hard to give a dollar. But if you've got a million, do you know how difficult it is to write a check for $100,000 when you're greedy? So don't just... Think, well, if I had money, then I would give it. That isn't true. If you had a lot of money, you'd be even more greedy. It would only further establish the greedy heart that lies within you. What you have to do is change your heart. And that's why the woman in the Bible that stands as the greatest example of a generous giver is a woman who gave next to nothing, two mites. Do you think that helped the temple budget? If she had never even given it, do you think they would have noticed? Not at all. But Jesus separated her out from everybody else that gave anything and a lot. The Pharisees were known for their their big gifts that really weren't sacrificial. This woman gave very little, and yet Jesus said, that's your example. So you guys, I don't care if you have next to nothing. If you're not giving what you do have, the little that you have to the Lord, then you're greedy and you're covetous. And see, you can be a lover of money Without having a dime. Some of the most greedy, covetous people are poor. Some of the most lovers of money are poor people because they want it. That's their focus. I'm going to run after this. This is going to give me everything I wanted to have. So don't judge people who are successful and think, well, yeah, if I was like them, I would give. No, you wouldn't. And see, Jesus does not in any way at all judge this man for being successful. Do you notice that? And I remember as a new Christian, I used to judge rich people because I grew up having very little. And I used to think, you know, rich people, they they must not love God. Well, there's nothing here where Jesus chastises this man for being successful. He doesn't say, hey, you ought to be like the dude down the road that's a horrible farmer. You ought to be like the unsuccessful guy. No, he doesn't say that. He says, what should have happened is this guy who is a wise businessman, who's a good farmer, who's a hard worker, this guy should have taken what he had Extra, and he should have given it to the poor. He should have blessed others with it. Should have given it to the Lord so that he could further his kingdom. See, that's what it's about. It's not about being successful. If you're successful, praise the Lord. Use that. Be a generous giver. If you're not successful in the world's eyes, if you make next to nothing, decide how you are going to give to God. Sacrificially. See, it's one thing to, to just give But the Bible calls us to give sacrificially, where it costs us something. And I mean, that convicts me. And you know what? It's it's not just our money. It's also our time. And some people are generous with with their money, but they're very, very selfish with their time. And it's all about me. It's all about I. And you notice that when this guy is talking to himself about what he's going to do, what am I going to do with my extra crops? I mean, he's so excited. It's like, you know, you win the lottery. What am I going to do with this, you know? It's half the fun. And, and notice how many eyes and my's are in here. What shall I do? I will do this. I will pull down my barns. I will store all my crops and my goods. See, that's the problem. It's a wrong perspective. And some of you that are greedy, the reason you're greedy is because you think it's yours and you're holding onto it with everything you have. This is mine. I worked hard. God, don't take this from me. I worked hard for this. And do you think I'm going to give it to those lazy, no good people that are doing drugs over there? They ought to be poor. They flush their life down the toilet. That's not my problem, God. I worked hard. See, that's the elder brother syndrome. It's the elder brother syndrome that many in the church have. Many of you have it. The elder brother that when the younger brother was blessed, he was ticked. Why is he being blessed? He screwed his life up. God, I've worked hard for you. I deserve this. How could you take this from me? That's why you don't want to give. This is mine. I'm hanging on to this. And if I see a need here or there that I deem worthy, then I'll give to it. But it's under my conditions, and I get to decide where it goes and how it's spent and make sure that it's all the things that meet my criteria. And God's not pleased with that. He just says, give. Let me take care of it. Let me worry about them and their heart and where they're at. Just be generous. Now, I'm not saying we ought to give to causes that aren't worthy. I'm just saying, be generous. Don't worry about the fact that, that someone may be using that to buy something that they don't need or, or whatever. Don't worry about you, that you think, well, those, those people that are receiving free meals, they really ought to be working. Just let God deal with that. Be generous. Don't be a greedy person. Give and you'll be blessed. A fool is one who hoards and is selfish and ends up having Nothing to show for it, even in eternity. Lays up treasure for himself and is poor toward God. What a sad indictment. The third thing, quickly, disciples aren't warriors. Then he said to his disciples, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, nor about the body, what you will put on. Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap. Which have neither storehouse nor barn and God feeds them of how much more value are you than the birds? The same illustration he gave earlier about the ravens. If God feeds the or the sparrows, and now he's using the ravens, who were the lowest of the animal kind, really. They were unclean, they're the stupid birds that terrorize your picnics, they eat out of your dumpster, they make a mess with the garbage. Those birds, they're valuable to God. Even though they were unclean, consider them. They don't sow, they don't reap, they don't have barns, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? Don't worry about these things. God's going to take care of you, just like he does the animals. And you're one of his image bearers. How much more will he take care of you? And which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature. Now I think this is actually poorly translated in the King James, and New King James. It's probably better translated, can add one hour to the span of his life. In fact, studies have shown that worry does just the opposite. If you're a worrier, if you're a person who's just riddled with anxiety, someone who is constantly stressed out and trying to f- figure out stuff that you have no control of, staying up at night, You might as well be like a chain smoker. It's that bad on your heart, is what studies have shown. It just absolutely terrorizes your body. And so which of you, by worrying, can add an hour to your life, can do anything of any value? It it doesn't. Worry accomplishes nothing. If you then are not able to do the least, why are you anxious for the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. They're not working hard. They're not, ah, you know, I can do this. I got to... And I say to you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. They don't even try. And yet, they're just beautiful. If then God so clothes the grass which today is in the field and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, if God cares about the grass, that tomorrow is going to get mowed and sucked into a bag and dumped out behind the tree or burned in the fire, why would he not care for you? Why would he not provide for you? How much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind. Don't seek after these things. God will take care of you. Some of you right now are in a financial position that you've never been in before. You don't know how you're going to provide for your kids. You don't know how you're going to pay your rent. You don't know how you're going to clothe your family, feed your family. And that, you guys, is not a fun place to be. And I don't envy you and my heart goes out to you, and I pray for you. But know this, that God has promised to provide. He's promised you. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter eight that he who did not spare his own son, how shall he not freely give you all things? He provided for your greatest need. He will provide for everything else. And know this, that as a church, we're here to support you, to love you, to pray for you, to help you in any way we can. But know That Jesus is going to take care of your necessities. He's promised. You've put your life in his hands. You've said, Jesus, I'm banking everything on you and your word. My very salvation. I'm putting it in your hands. But, you know, the beans and rice, I've got to take care of that myself. God's just like, give it to me. I'll take care of you. Now, don't be lazy. And if you're unemployed, I've said this before. It's not a time to fish. It's not a time to get really good at bow hunting. Get up. Take a shower, get dressed, and spend eight hours a day looking for a job. you got to do it. Don't expect God just to drop it in your lap, but trust him. Pray. Seek the Lord. Use the time that you do have, not selfishly, but to minister to others. You know, we've got a lot of unemployed people, and I haven't really seen any more volunteers for things. It tells me that people are spending their time worrying about the fact they're unemployed, not seeking the Lord. You know what's really horrible is when you're unemployed for a while, and you worry and worry and worry the whole time, and then you finally get a job, and it's like, man, those six months, I really wasted. What good did I do worrying that whole time? If I could have just used it for the kingdom, how much could I have accomplished in that time for Jesus? He provided for me anyway. Do not seek those necessities. For all these things, the nations of the world seek after. That's That's what people that don't even know Jesus, that's where their mind is at. Don't let your mind go there. That's not fitting for a disciple. Your father knows that you need these things. Some of us are living as if God doesn't know. God, you must be ignorant of my needs, and so I'm gonna go out and take care of it myself. You must be ignoring me. Unemployment's 20%. Clearly, God, you're overwhelmed. You didn't know this was going to happen. But seek the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added to you. Is that a promise? I think it is. Seek him. Seek him in his kingdom. Make him the Lord of your life. Make establishing his kingdom your priority. Worship him. Honor him. Make him the passionate pursuit of your life. Allow him to set up his kingdom in your heart. Some of you are thinking, man, I just can't wait to get to heaven. God's going to set up his kingdom. He's going to burn all this earth. I can't wait for that. You know what? God wants to set up his kingdom right now in your heart. Quit thinking about the fact he's going to burn everything and think about the fact that he wants to set up his kingdom right now in your heart. Oh, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. I can't wait for the rapture. That is not what the rapture is supposed to do. We're supposed to say, Jesus, set up your kingdom now in me. Yes, his kingdom is coming, but it's now as well. It's now and it's then. He wants to start right now. it has been so much damage by this doctrine of, Simply kingdom then mentality. That it's all about then. And we're just going to destroy the earth. We're not going to be on mission for God. We're not going to care about people. And it's why the church is in the position that it's in right now. Kingdom in my life now. In kingdom then. Seek first his kingdom. His righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. That's phenomenal. That's a promise for you. Do not fear little flock. For it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Do you hear that? It's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He doesn't want to hold anything back from you. He wants to bless you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. But you're looking at the wrong stuff. He wants to give you the most important thing. Will you receive it? It's his good pleasure to do so. Sell what you have and give alms. Provide yourselves money bags which do not grow old, a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where's your treasure? Where's your priority? Are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? If you are, it'll be very apparent to you. If you are, you won't be fake, you won't be greedy, and you won't be a worrier. I I don't know about you, but that convicts me. And conviction, you guys, shouldn't lead to condemnation. I don't want you to leave here going, oh man, Ryan made me feel bad again, I'm horrible. I want you to leave here going, Jesus, thank you for the cross. Thank you for the gospel. It's my only hope. It's all I have. Lord, I'm a failure. Lord, I've been a fake. Lord, I'm greedy. My heart is wicked. God, I've been worrying. I haven't been trusting you. I'm so far from you, God. But lead me to the cross. It's our only hope. And if you're not a Christian here this morning and you want Jesus, please come talk to me. I wanna tell you of the hope that we have in him, a hope beyond this life. And if you are a Christian, man, don't leave here having heard another message that you don't plan to do anything with. I pray that it revolutionizes your life. I pray that it changes you. You guys, my time here at Calvary Crook County is is coming to an end. And if anything that I've given you I want it to be Jesus. Make him real to you. Quit being fake. Quit going through the motions. Be sold out to Jesus. Seek him in his kingdom. It's all that matters. It's all that matters. Make Jesus famous. It starts in you, and it begins to impact the city in which you live, the world in which you live. Real disciples, real disciples. Authentic, genuine disciples of Jesus radically change things. There's no mediocrity. There's no going through the motions. There's no singing songs like you're singing the stupid national anthem. It's worship, reckless abandon for Jesus. Let's do it. Let's be on mission for Him. We don't have time for anything less than that. Let's stand and pray together. Father, we. Come before you as sinners saved by grace. God, we come before you recognizing once again our need for the gospel. Lord, I don't know how we can go a minute without being reminded of the gospel, without being reminded of the cross and of the blood you shed for our sin. And Lord, I pray right now, if there's anyone here that does not know you, that Lord, they would turn their lives over to you. They would say, Jesus, I want what you have for me. I'm a sinner, I surrender to you, forgive me, cleanse me, I offer my life to you. And Lord, I pray for those of us that are Christians who have been absolutely just convicted by your spirit this morning. Lord, some of us are fake, we've been living like hypocrites, and God, we confess that to you as sin. God, we want to be real, we want to be authentic, we want to be genuine. God, expose our heart, God, take it out. Lay it on the table and deal with us, Lord. We're tired of pretending. Lord, some of us are greedy. God, it's been all about us. It's been about storing up treasure in my barn so that I can spend it on my pleasure. Lord, forgive us, God. Make us generous givers. God, give us the right perspective. Forgive us for the idolatry of possessions and money and material things. God, we confess it to you as sin. It's ugly to you. It's abhorrent to you, and we ask your forgiveness. We need your grace. Lord, some of us have been worrying more now than ever before, and God, there's a lot to worry about. There's a lot going on. But God, your word tells us to not worry about these things, to set our mind on things above, to seek first your kingdom, and all these things will be added to us. Lord, that's a promise. Lord, you've told us not to be anxious for anything, but in everything through prayer and supplication, to make your request known to God. And Lord, you've told us the peace of God will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's what we want, Lord. We need your peace. We want to trust you. Forgive us, Lord, for having a God so small, for making you so small in our mind that we don't even think you can provide for our basic necessities. God, that's not you. You are a big God. You are powerful. You have everything at your disposal, Lord. And nothing, nothing happens to us that's not according to your plan and that is not for our good. Lord, forgive us for our worry, for not trusting you. We confess it. We need your cleansing and your forgiveness this morning. God, I pray we would not leave condemned. There's no condemnation for those of us in Christ Jesus. That God, we'd leave being absolutely revolutionized by Jesus in the gospel once again. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to Pastor Ryan Couch of Calvary Chapel, Crook County. For more information, you can write to us at PO Box 378, Prineville, Oregon, 97754. Thanks for listening, and God bless.